BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Following enrollment, anxiety about health risks and confusing guidelines from public health officials have all contributed to a crisis in California's childcare facilities. And that's according to a recent report out of UC Berkeley that surveyed preschools and in-home daycare centers on how they're navigating the pandemic. We're going to discuss the report and why the childcare industry is in financial trouble, and we're going to hear what needs to be done about it. Leah Austin joins us. Leah Austin is co-director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley, co-author of a new report called California Child Care in Crisis, the Escalating Impacts of COVID-19 as California Reopens. And welcome, Leah Austin. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And I'll say good morning also to Makia Ward, who is school administrator with Kids Connect Preschool in Alameda and San Mateo Counties. Welcome, Makia Ward. Uh, Makia Ward, are you with us? I am. Okay. I wasn't sure there for a moment. We have these delays now in this remote broadcasting that we're doing uh, presents problems of a sort, but I'm glad to have both of you with us and welcome to the program. I should mention right off here that there are 2,000 child care programs throughout the state of California. It's pretty grim since COVID-19, not only in terms of the vital nature of the workforce and its tie to child care, but Really, a study that was done, uh, which Leah Austin was co-director of, looked into the childcare workforce itself. And Leah Austin, give us a picture of what you found, if you could. Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll just start by saying um, there are actually tens of thousands of childcare programs in California. We surveyed um, a couple thousand in April, and then another 953 um, this past month, uh, earlier this month in July. And what we found, um, particularly in this latest survey, is that, you know, childcare as a service um, has really been uh, understood or recognized now as essential and a key part of our infrastructure and a key part of our economy. But the early educators and the providers of those services, most of whom are women and women of color in California, have yet to be treated or recognized themselves as individuals as essential. Childcare providers are really deeply concerned about the health risks of operating during this pandemic, but they're assuming those health risks in order to avoid financial devastation. Um, they just don't have enough resources um, to uh, sustain themselves without being open, um, even if they feel like they should close for their own, their own health and safety. And you mentioned the fact that uh, we're, we're talking largely about uh, black and brown women who serve in the capacity of doing child care. Um, uh, there's no union. There's no, for many of them, there's no health care. Um, 
So these are obviously in addition to the fear of coronavirus, uh, terrible problems, but there were inequities and there were problems uh, in this industry, especially in terms of financial trouble really before the pandemic, weren't there? Absolutely. Um, Pre-pandemic, the early care and education system was really um, operating on a shaky foundation. Um, the programs have been severely under-resourced. Um, people who work in those programs are earning poverty level wages. We know that early educators in California, for example, experience poverty at double the rate of other workers at six times the rate of K-12 teachers. And because of the nature of the programs, these are mostly very small programs. Um, it has been very hard for this workforce to organize and um, have uh, collective bargaining rights. There is some movement now with in-home providers gaining, gaining some of that momentum and, and some rights to, to unionize, but most don't belong to a union or a professional association. Um, and we can see the consequences of that when we, we look at how you know, the K-12 discussion about school reopenings is, is happening right now and unfolding. And you have teachers who are incredibly organized. Um, they're very vocal about their conditions and concerns about their own health and well-being, whereas early educators just don't have that collective voice and are really being ignored um, in this pandemic. And this is a system really uh, that's market-based for the most part, uh, and that breeds terrible inequities. Uh, in fact, there are subsidies, but there are long waiting lists for those subsidies. There are very long waiting lists for subsidies. You know, we're trying to deliver what really is a public good on a market-based system. And of course, markets are inherently unequal. Um, and so what happens with childcare is the burden mostly falls on parents to pay the cost. And any parent out there who has um, ever utilized childcare or thought about utilizing childcare, maybe they haven't because of the cost, um, but really understand how for a parent, it's very expensive, but as a provider, there's still not enough resources coming in to adequately fund services, pay your staff benefits and these sorts of things. And so the system ends up getting subsidized on the back of the women who are doing this work with their low wages. We, we end up having what parents can pay um, tied to what teachers earn. And there's very little public subsidy. The public subsidy that's available um, is there are long waiting lists for people to access that. So you have a lot of families who may be income eligible, but can't access those subsidies. Um, and the subsidies as they are, are also not sufficient to cover the true cost of care. And so all of this existed coming into this pandemic. And so what has happened is this emergency and the um, you know parents not being able to pay or utilize childcare at the same rate, the increased requirements, um, which are leading programs to have higher expenses for cleaning and sanitizing and equipment. Um, with fewer children, they have to serve fewer children, so their capacity is, you know, reduced. They're serving about half as many kids as they were before. All of that has really just pulled the rug out from under so many providers who were struggling um, before before this emergency and are, are really um, just finding that financially, um, though they're they're trying to they're trying to stay open. They're they're you know trying to make ends meet you know, they're skipping payments to themselves. So they're not earning their own salaries. Our survey found that um, many are using 
credit cards to cover expenses for their business. And one in five respondents in our survey have actually missed a rent or mortgage payment on their business. And for in-home providers, that's their home as well. So, you know, that's, that's um, you know, really dire circumstances that people find themselves in. Yeah, as you said, some are so in debt that they're operating on personal credit cards. Uh, they can't even afford snacks. Uh, this is in many instances, a desperate situation that Leah Austin is talking about. She's co-director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley and co-author of a new report, California Child Care in Crisis, the Escalating Impacts of COVID-19 as California Reopens. And let me bring uh, Makia Ward into this discussion, who is school administrator with Kids Connect Preschool in Alameda and San Mateo counties. And Makia, with all this talk about falling enrollments and reduced income and increased costs, uh, costs excuse me, there's uh, and desperation really. Uh, there's all this pressure to open, um, but you have, uh, and I imagine you could speak to this if you would. Uh, the workers themselves who were terrified about being exposed. Um, absolutely. When we um, made the decision to stay open in Alameda County. Um, a lot of our families were saying if we didn't stay open, they weren't sure how they were going to be able to get to work. And they too were essential workers. And the staff was, they were pretty terrified. Um, there were so many unknowns, especially um, early on in March. And we made the decision in Alameda County to remain open um, after hearing from the Alameda County um, Public Health Department who kind of left it up to us if we wanted to stay open. Whereas um, in San Mateo County, it wasn't as clear to us. And so we made the decision to close down and um, parents were kind of all over the board. Some were upset that we stayed, uh, that we closed and others um, were upset that we were anticipating staying open. Um, so it was a lot to handle in a short amount of time for us. And certainly challenging from every perspective, uh, especially since you've got different rules in, in San Mateo than you have in Alameda and Alameda and San Mateo, uh, not following this and, and conflicting information, right? Absolutely. Um, I spend quite a bit of time trying to unravel all of the rules and they are ever changing. And so our number one priority is to keep our children and staff safe. And so we spend a lot of time reading what what's occurred and what's changed and what can we do to, to make sure that we stay um, safe. It's always the number one. Um, so the public health guidelines are very confusing in general, I think, uh, but I'm absolutely. wondering. Yes, that is very true. Wondering very also about your thoughts uh, about the fact that it, it seems to me that when you're working with, uh, with children, um, you have all this activity that's designed to promote sharing for the most part, and yet you have to social distance. Uh, this in itself is just a major change. And you've got two and three-year-olds who can't wear masks, who uh, you've got the problems of body fluids. There's just so much in the way of what you are responsible for, which goes almost against the grain of what childcare is all about. Absolutely. It has been uh, quite a challenge to keep little ones away from one another. And we've um, implemented different games, um, different ways of teaching them uh, how to social distance. Um, so it's kind of parallel play more than interactive play. And like you just said, that's kind of the basis for early childhood is to learn um, social emotional development and self-regulation. And so this is very challenging to meet 
those objectives in this environment. And what about PPE and sanitization supplies and all of that? We have found it very challenging to find those items. Um, we were fortunate enough to get kind of a first round from Four C's, which is Community Child Care Council. Um, there's um, one in Alameda County and one in San Mateo County, and they were um, instrumental in supplying us our first round. But as time has gone on, we're finding it really hard to find disinfecting products and masks um, and other protective equipment for our staff. Talking about uh, child care providers' uh, challenges during the pandemic with Lee Austin and Makia Ward, and you, our listeners, in fact, are you a parent or child care provider concerned about the future of child care? And what has been your experience with child care during the pandemic? I'd like to hear from you, and you can join us now at our toll-free number. I invite you to do that. The number to call, 866-733-6786. That, again, toll-free number is 866-733-6786. And you can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions to forum at kqed.org. And uh, Makia Ward, what are you hearing from parents? What are their concerns? They are concerned about cleaning. They're concerned about uh, staff um, wearing masks while in presence of um, their children. And some have just opted out. They've decided it's just not worth the risk. Um, and they're fearful. A lot of fear. Well, certainly that uh, the study that uh, we were talking about also with Lee Austin bears that out uh, in terms of the fear here. In fact, let me ask you, Lee Austin, about a, a question from a listener named Gina who says, I'd like to hear what you think about advocating for our child care community with elected officials and business leaders. There are lots of things people can do right now to help solve the crisis. Would you agree with that? And what about advocacy? Yeah, I think advocacy is really clear, uh, uh, really clear how important it is. And as I was describing um, earlier, the, just the difference between what's happening and, and the awareness of K-12 teachers uh, compared to, to early childhood teachers. And so I think um, being able to advocate, being able to kind of use as many channels and voices as possible to raise awareness um, of the conditions of early childhood uh, programs and the providers working in those programs um, and the real concerns and risks both fiscally and you know, health-wise. And I think that um, it's, really, it's really critical that we talk about what it means to be providing childcare in the middle of, this, of a pandemic and both the, you know, the stress that, that uh, involves and again, just the, the financial risk that people are taking um, and really explore, you know, solutions, explore opportunities to address this. We've um, heard across states people talking about a stabilization fund. Um, Vermont instituted something uh, like, like this where they provided funding from the state um, directly to childcare programs that allowed them to cover their costs, whether they closed or they had reduced enrollment so that they could continue to pay their bills and pay their staff as well, both to stabilize those programs in the immediate term and to consider um, the impact long-term and making sure that the childcare programs um, you know, are not only here right now, but that they're here for the long term. You know, we had a childcare shortage 
pre-pandemic, there was not enough childcare available for all of the people who need to utilize it. And this is only exacerbating that. So we also have to think about um, supporting programs and supporting the workers in those programs um, right now, but also for the long term, um, again, both for their own well-being, but for the, uh, you know, the well-being of their programs um, over time. And so I think there are options that our policymakers and business leaders can be advocating for um, that can stabilize programs and really address some much needed reforms um, and reforms that we were already talking about uh, pre this crisis. I think it's safe to say if there, there's such a need right now, a dire need for more public funding, that if public funding is not forthcoming, the whole child care system could collapse on us. That's right. I mean, really, the, the solution to this is public funding and public intervention. And again, that, that was the solution pre-pandemic. That's what was really needed because there, this, this link between what parents can afford and how programs operate and the resources available to them just does not bear out. Um, if we were to consider our public school system that way, which, you know, granted our public school system, you know, is in need of, of support as well. But if we said to families, um, you know, you can't access second grade unless you can pay the tuition. And we said to teachers in those programs, well, you know, your salary is going to be based on what the parents in your classroom pay, you know, people would just think that's just makes no sense whatsoever. It's not, you know, it, it wouldn't work, but that is exactly how the childcare system is organized. And we are really seeing the consequences of that. And I want to bring a caller on with us. That's you, Philip. Join us. You're on the air. Good morning. Hi. 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 Uh, yeah, I'm Philip. Uh, I work with uh, Children's Council of San Francisco. Um, I wanted to thank you, panelists, for, for mentioning um, childcare uh, four C's of Alameda. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, there are childcare uh, resource and referral agencies like four C's all over the Bay Area, and they're leading coalitions to help address this crisis right now. And there are things that um, everyone can do at, uh, at Children's Council. Uh, we just launched a new campaign without childcare. San Francisco doesn't work, and it's targeting the business community and civic leaders because um, we really, as your panelists just said, we need businesses and elected officials to get on board now to advocate for uh, childcare providers. Um, I encourage everyone to visit their local um, childcare agencies' websites on social media. Um, you can go to childrenscouncil.org right now, and it's uh, childrenscouncil.org backslash recovery. And we've got some action items that will help you uh, talk to your boss if you're working and you need support for child care, how to talk to your boss about it, how to join our advocacy coalition, and, uh, and tell our elected officials that we need to take action on this right now. It's a good resource, Philip, and I thank you for bringing it to our attention. Thank you for the call, and uh, we're getting... Certainly some echoing of the importance of advocacy here. Let me bring another caller aboard there. That's Elisa from Pacifica. Good morning. Hello. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, my name is Elisa, and I'm executive director of Coastside Children's Programs in Half Moon Bay. And I have a question for Makia. One of the issues that is coming up for our preschools is how do the teachers meet the social needs of the children? when it's counterintuitive to keep them apart. Yeah, Makia? Um, 
Please, thank you for that question, Elisa. Makia Ward. Sure. What we've been doing is utilizing a lot of time outdoors um, while continuing to social distance for their safety. But we find that um, we just do a lot better when we're outside and can play and be in our own spaces. And um, just reading about being in open air environments kind of helps us to, to do that. And I'm going to read some tweets that are coming in here. Let me thank Elisa for the call. Uh, Noel tweets, if this doesn't make the case for national funding for child care, I don't know what else will. High quality nationalized child care is mandatory in places like France. Socialism is good in this case. Parents need to demand this. Another tweet from Michael who writes, if essential workers need daycare in order to work, then their employers should pay for the daycare during the pandemic emergency. And here's Nadine who says, my husband and I made the difficult decision to keep our three-year-old out of childcare while we both continue to work from home. How else can we support childcare providers during this time? Can I go to you on that, uh, Leigh Austin? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think back to this question of, of advocacy and really calling for public support and public resources. Um, I think, you know, parents, uh, know so well how important childcare is, um, and they also know um, the burden that it places on families um, to, to pay for childcare. And so I think, you know, parents play a really key role in, in speaking up and calling for um, public investment and public, public resources. And I think the other piece of that is, um, and, and Philip, I think, alluded to this, of, you know, talking to um, employers talking to other policymakers so that they're thinking about childcare as they're thinking about other parts of our system and our infrastructure and our economy. I think part of what we see happening to childcare in this crisis is that childcare is kind of expected to, you know, carry the burden for so much of what else is happening in this emergency. People aren't able to. Um, or are being pressured to go back to work themselves and need childcare. And so they're, in turn, many families um, feel like they have no other choice. And there's this, this pressure being put on childcare providers um, to, to be available and to provide these services. And, you know, in these, you know, decisions about businesses reopening or what other workers are going to have or not have to allow them to stay at home or have the resources they need, Childcare uh, and the people working in the childcare system have been left out of that um, and are just kind of expected to figure out how to make these decisions and how to survive on their own. Lee Austin, again, is co-director of the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley. And Angie writes, we have to urge Congress to allocate more funding for childcare so programs can stay open and the professionals who do the work can get paid. This is more important than bailing out airlines. Just one airline, Delta, got more stimulus funding than the entire child care industry. Alice writes, we are going to see the school achievement gap widen as families who are ineligible for subsidized child care are not going to be able to pay the COVID-19 premium. Private centers are forced to charge to cover increased costs, and those children will miss out on school readiness they can gain in preschool. Let's bring Jennifer on next. Jennifer, thank you for waiting. Join us. Hi. Hi there. Um, can you guys hear me? Oh, great. Yeah, we can hear you. So I, I live in San Francisco, and I have a three-year-old and an 18-month-old, and they both are going to a child care center that my employer 
houses. So they franchise out with kinder care and my employer is just located there. And I just want to say I'm, I have asthma. My husband has diabetes. We're very scared of COVID-19, but we could not be happier with the measures that our center has taken to make sure our kids are safe. I feel so great sending them there each day and my kids love it. They love being with their teachers and their friends. And I just want to say thank you so much to the teachers, um, specifically at the kinder care center where my kids go. So thank you for your time. And thank you for your call. And uh, those kind of calls are always uh, heartening to hear. But I'm wondering, McKay Ward, if I can go back to you on this uh, coronavirus cases, just this past week in California, child care facilities uh, are higher than they were a month ago. They're not, you know, great numbers uh, yet, but uh, UCSF uh, pediatrician and health policy professor uh, Naomi Bardick uh, uh, was talking about uh, how to interpret the data and just getting at home or daycare centers uh, aware of this possible slight movement upward. And we're talking also about the possibility, of course, of a second wave. How do you weigh all that in the balance? We are doing the best we can, but it also takes um, not only the childcare center to follow rules and to try to mitigate, but it also is uh, important that our families that attend our childcare centers do their part in trying to minimize their exposure as well. And so we are using the guidelines of the CDC. We have uh, questions that we ask upon um, the children entering the center. Um, we minimize any kind of outside um, activity in terms of visitors or parents. Um, so we're, we're doing all of those things, but it really does depend on the relationship and the partnership with the families to mitigate and, and to stop it from spreading. Um, it is a challenge because uh, in California, we see businesses opening and uh, more uh, social interactions. And so I, I predict or I, I assume that we're going to see some um, increases in uh, child care centers because we cannot control what's outside of our our centers. Yeah. Anybody is a transmitter, unfortunately, potentially. Let me bring Roseanne on another caller. Roseanne, welcome. You're on the air. Thank you for waiting. Hello. Hi. Hi, I'm Roseanne. I'm a child care provider in Oakland. Yeah, go ahead, Roseanne, please. I have a family child care center. I take care of four infants at a time, um, licensed for eight, but I choose to do four infants. I just wanted to clarify something very, very important. There's been a 16-year campaign to develop the child care union, and I've been on the committee for at least eight years, and we have a union. We've got the votes. We have campaigned. We, it's all over the Internet. We just finished the final vote. And the numbers are up, and we have a union. We just haven't been told what percentage we won by. So I'm not sure how anybody in the field could not be aware of the development of this union. It has been just working so hard. And with all volunteers, including me, you know, phone banking and calling and making sure people get their masks because there's so many centers that did stay open for one or two kids because their parents were essential workers. And I'm one of those people. I'm 70 years old, and I continued to care for children of essential workers. Well, I say good I'm, for you and plaudits to you. I'm just wondering, though, what about collective bargaining power with this launch union? 
collective bargaining's on the way. I mean, we just got the vote within this week. Well, congratulations and uh, good luck to you. And uh, well, kudos for the work you've done. Thank you for joining us. And our thanks also to our guest, Leah Austin, co-director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley and co-author of the new report, which I believe is online, isn't it, Leah? It is, yes, at um, cscc.berkeley.edu. And thanks, McKay Ward. Good to have you with us. Appreciate your being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. McKay Ward, school administrator with Kids Connect Preschool in Alameda and San Mateo County. Thank you for being a part of this morning's forum program. And uh, we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. Uh, there's an hour repeated in the evening, and we're going to have a special hour dedicated to John Lewis coming up next. For all of us at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.